0: Yo, what is up? You have found we like the Blazers. I am Brandon Goldner, and with me, as always, it is Ryan Whitledge. Ryan, what's up, man? Not a whole lot. I can actually
1: wave. I have a, I have a clear camera. People may possibly see this. Yes. If, if I could just get that background music, just that we have. If I could. I'm trying. I'm trying to listen to it in my head. Dude, your camera looks uh, fucking
0: crispy. Uh, we are looking bright and shiny this Saturday morning. Yeah. How is, uh, how is your weekend begun so far? Uh, a little fog little a little fuzzy
1: uh it uh, imbibed a little bit too much last night during that uh Joys Blake or Blakers blazers Lakers. <laughs> blazers win over the Lakers so uh trust, trusty little power aid here to, to get me through
0: it that's that's great man that was a huge that was a huge win and I don't know like I, I said I was gonna let you drive this entire section but I just like regardless of how it happened that was like pro I, I think that was the biggest win of the season. I thought we're
1: supposed to piss all over it because there was no LeBron. There's no Schroeder. AD was at well, half strength. So it doesn't count as a win. I thought that's, I thought that's the process for the year.
0: I mean, if you follow me on Twitter at gold you would know that I, I like, I, sort of poo-pooed it. The Blazers, they didn't look great. I thought they played about as poorly as as they had since their road trip where they went five and one. However, where I landed on this after thinking about it was like, look, if you're going to have like a less than perfect game, then hey, a less than perfect game that results in a win in the most crucial game of the year against your longtime rival is actually not so bad. Yeah, and that one was super important. I uh,
1: I told you, you had that down as the loss. I told you not to worry about that. The one I had down is the worry for the worry meter proved to be wrong. Uh, so we were both wor- wrong. We were both wrong, so uh, nothing new there. Yeah, it turns out a uh, tornado warning is what felled the team in, but I'm I'm fine with that. But now now we trap sit here game
0: with the tornado warning. It's always a tornado e- trap game. Exactly,
1: and so now we sit here. We got what? One, two, three, four, five games left. Uh, Blazers are firmly locked in in the sixth seed. I believe one game behind the Mavericks and one game up on now the Lakers, who, by the way, I find it great. There's so much flip-flopping with this whole play-in tournament thing. I mean, LeBron last year is like, oh, it's great. Let him duke oh, yeah. it out, whatever. Which, in his mind, he's like, yeah, sure. Whoever we're going to play in the first round, let's get them all tired and, and worn out. Yeah, you know. And now, th- and now that he's looking at being in it, he's like, this thing fucking sucks. Whoever thought of this shit needs to be
0: fired. Yeah, it's funny. I haven't heard Luca or Mark Cuban say anything about it lately since the Mavs have been pretty much on fire. The Mavs are playing better without Porzingis than they were with him, which is a little bit disconcerting. um And yeah, and we are going to get to our awesome guest, Ben Golliver, which I probably should have said right off the top. But before we do that, we're going to talk playoff stuff so yeah um five games left the how are you and you said you said it too the the blazers now they they cannot fall out of the play-in tournament so they're at least there and the other the other thing to mention is they're they're a game up on the lakers but because they have the tiebreaker they're effectively two games up on the lakers but have you heard this this funky if there's a three-way tie between the Blazers, the Lakers and Mavs? Have you heard about how these rules work? It's pretty dumb. Yeah, and I always forget that the only thing
1: that they changed with the with the tiebreakers or playoff seating was just the automatic home court if you won your division, but yeah, the the winning your division gets you a tiebreaker over other teams even if they're
0: not in in your division yeah so So the the blazers have if there were an individual tie at the mavericks the blazers would win if there were an individual tie at the lakers the blazers win but if it's a three-way tie with the blazers mavs and lakers then the mavs win because they won their division that is you know what this is adam silver's you know small market bias at work (laughs) once again helping out dallas i just think it's a stupid rule that's all yeah and i agree and partly because too you know
1: we're getting into now this this the time of of everyone trying to figure out oh what's what's the best playoff matchup and whatnot which by the way that's one of the genius parts of the hidden genius parts behind that play-in tournament is because you know you have phoenix and and uh utah right now jockeying for that one and two it seems every night they're trading on who's who's number one who's number two um and in years prior you could Maybe see in that kind of battle, like if one team really wanted to match up with another team that they could you know oh we 'll let a game slip here or there at a drop so that they could get the second and play the seventh, you know, however, you don 't get that this year you have right. it's literally they're looking going well there's a pool of four teams we don 't know who the hell we 're going to play, um, you know that middle of the west is a little a little more um, what are your thoughts? Do you have a preferred playoff
0: matchup that you want to see? Should the blazers be hunting for anybody else? In as much as they can uh so no the Blazers should not be getting tricky with their playoff position let the chips fall where they may the Blazers should be gunning for as good of a seat as they can get um having said that there are a couple teams that I wouldn't mind seeing over some other teams and and, like as soon as I say this I'm sure that once they get matched up with one of those teams they're just going to have their asses handed to them um I I mean I remember all over again Exactly. I mean, I, I remember not so long ago when the Blazers were going to meet the Warriors in the conference finals. And I was thinking, well, geez, the Warriors don't have KD. So, you know, maybe the blaze, you know, and then they got swept. Um, yeah. So my first team and I, and I, and I'm not looking at the standings right now. I don't know how it can um, switch around, but I think it's still possible that they could meet the Denver nuggets if I'm not mistaken. Cause mm. if the Blazers can get up to fifth and the nuggets are fourth, then that'd be a five, four matchup with Denver. And look, yeah. I, I know Denver's been doing really well, but they don't have their second best player. They don't have Jamal Murray. And I think that in the playoffs, when you're, when you're able to scheme against a team again and again, and look, no one's going to stop Jokic. We all know that. He's going to be the MVP for a reason. But that would be one team I would look to is that they are, again, they're missing their second best player and you just can't ignore that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I personally, I, I can't stand the, oh, you know, the playoff matchup or, or trying to pick your opponent or anything like that. It drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, I gave up on that ever since the Pelican series when I thought that was a great effing matchup and then just absolutely embarrassed um and there's the the thing I'm I look at like the clippers terrify me because the one weakness that the blazers have is the ability to guard athletic wings and that is I've just described the entire Clippers roster as right. athletic wings. You have a team of them. That that's gonna be your worst. You know, obviously you touched on um, you know, nobody's gonna stop Jokic. Denver intrigues me because there's a history there, you know, after after that Blazers Western Conference Finals run, for the most part the core pieces or the the important players are still there. And so I'd be curious how Jokic is gonna wanna react to To that, that'd be his chance for revenge. To just absolutely embarrass the Blazers. Nurkic loves playing against Jokic. It's normally when he plays his best ball. Um, And those are pretty much like your only options for where you're going to get.
0: And as it stands right now, you know, did you? You didn't mention the Suns, though, did you? See, but I mean, I think the Blazers could play any of those top four seeds. The Blazers could be anywhere between five and eight. Okay, if you want to get into wh- who I would think,
1: again, with that whole thing about lack of athletic wings, give, then the Suns are fantastic because they don't really have athletic wings, um, you know, and yeah, the, Chris Paul has held them together. They're they're great shooters and whatnot, but I, I don't mention them because in order to get... The Suns or the Jazz, you have to get into the play-in and not get your extra four days off. So it's kind of one of those things of like, all right, yeah, well, y- you gotta you gotta win in the first round and advance and hope you see them and and then so it's just whatever with well, them. It, pick- Denver and LA are the options. So that's pretty much it. All
0: right, well that's that's fair. I mean, I would I want to pick at the Suns thing a little bit. I, I have seen a lot of people who I respect basically say, bring on the Suns. That'd be great. Um, and I understand that a lot of that is coming from, you know, yes, they have Chris Paul who is the most veteran of veterans, but then they have a lot of young players who don't have any playoff experience. And I think what people are, are saying is essentially, and I, I generally agree with this, that history is the best indicator of what may happen in the future. So if a, if a team has playoff experience, again, the, the schematics are different. Um, you're not able to surprise teams. It's just a playoff series is different from regular, se- regular season games. And so if what people are saying is, absent that experience, then bring on the Suns. That's fair, but what I would push back on is it doesn't necessarily mean that your team will be unsuccessful just because you haven't been to the playoffs before. I get that it's easier to say that a team like the Blazers have a decent amount of playoff experience at this point, the Nuggets do, the Jazz do, the Clippers. You know, it's like, yeah. and I get that, but I wouldn't. I guess what I I wouldn't necessarily Everyone. dismiss the Suns everyone in
1: the west outside of the kings and timberwolves has decent playoff experience yeah that's true <laughs> so yeah. and it's i don't know i i i'm trying I haven't seen—granted, they're they're playing better as of late, and that's that's always important. Uh, you Ooh, know, let's heading, talk about that. That, that. It's always important heading into the playoffs because, like, I find it so funny that everyone's like, oh, well, I hope that this can—or I haven't seen much that'll that'll change my mind and whatnot. But then when they talk about the Lakers, they're like, well, as long as they can just get a couple games before the playoffs to get right. There is something to finding your rhythm at the right time and peaking at the right time. And we've seen it before with the Blazers where they've peaked— too early and then it's it flames out in the playoffs so
0: hopefully this can be continued sustained success well let's 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 talk about let's talk about leading up to the playoffs so you said one thing wanted to hit on which is the lakers look at this point there i just said that history is the best indicator of what's going to happen in the future i am not dismissing lebron and his ability to literally turn a switch for himself and his entire team he's done it Way too many times for me to say that this is the year it won't happen. I get that he has a high ankle sprain. It's been bothering him. I get that AD does not really look like himself in most of these games, although he did pretty well against the Blazers. He's I, made a class. Every time he touches the court, he falls down and gets hurt. I'm just saying that, like, I am not I'm not falling for this, like, LeBron is done thing until it happens. It's the same thing as what people were saying about the, the Spurs not making the playoffs until they don't make the playoffs. And, you know, and then they yeah. didn't make the playoffs. But, like, so – that's one thing. Here's the other thing. We talked last week about how I was feeling about the Blazers. They'd gone on a little wind streak, and I think you made the analogy of, like, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid, but, like, I have it in the snifter, and I'm, like, swirling it around, and, like, I can hear the yep. ice clinking against the glass. I, Ryan, at this point, like, the cup is is about to reach my lips. Like, I here, here's, the cup will reach my lips, and I will take a little tiny sip of that Kool-Aid if the Blazers beat the Spurs tonight, here's why. They looked really good during the road trip, and like I said, I thought that they played probably their worst game of the last six or seven games against the Lakers yesterday, Yeah, and guess what? They still won. Like, AD is still an incredible player. He had a really great game, and they still won, despite, I I, I don't have the stats in front of me, I think Roko went, for like, one for 11 or some shit. Like, there, there were some spots the Blazers could easily clean up and look a lot better tonight. I know that they played a lot of minutes. I know, like, Dave, and CJ uh, played nearly forty minutes, and Nurk, I think, played more minutes than he had since he's come back. But if the Blazers beat the Spurs tonight, I am going to take a tiny, polite little, you know, Liar. introductory sip to that Kool Aid. I, I think that they they may be able to do something in the playoffs. That's this will be the corner turning point for me. Liar! You are you are picking up that that entire five gallon.
1: Gatorade bucket (laughs) of Kool-Aid and dumping it over your head. No, no. It's like CJ
0: said when he got drenched with water. It's a regular season, bro. I I just like... I, I had been saying that like I was super skeptical of the Blazers' ability to make any noise in the playoffs, and I I, I wanted to really take my time with being you know tricked back into it. And like, again, another analogy which I appreciate. You were like they're not turning a corner; they're they're going in a circle, so it always feels like they're turning a corner. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what do you what do you think? Like it, so, if if the Blazers lose tonight, that's something else. Let's say that they beat the Spurs. Like how. How will you be feeling about the Blazers' ability to win a playoff series and to be a threat in a second-round series? Let's make that, let's make that the benchmark. Not, not going to change. Not going to change. I, I, I've
1: been here enough times before where I, it's literally, if you want me to have positive and optimistic feelings about the Blazers winning a playoff series, uh, that's not going to kick in until they win a playoff series this year.
0: <laughs> I think I just, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. So, no, 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 no. You have to make a prediction. You have to get on the record and say, so So basically, even if the Blazers if they blew out their next 6 games by 30 points apiece you're not going to be like well i predict that like like you're thinking it's going to have to change right like not saying that's going to happen i'm just i'm just like I- you have to get all on the right. record and make a prediction. Okay, that's what, it. I'm, I'm holding you to it. All right. what What do you want me to What do you want me to
1: predict? So, what do so, you want me? so
0: as of right now, because it's been a week since we recorded. Mm. You know, and they've looked pretty good the last week. Um, my cat just jumped off of the cat tree. It was pretty uh, nice. Nice moves. Are super athletic. Um, oh. So, based on what you've seen over the last week, you feel the same as you did the previous week, or do you feel any different, any more optimistic at all about? Again, let's 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 put it at the Blazers being competitive in a second round series. Like do you feel any differently about that. And it's okay if you don't, but I just want to pick I, at it. No, I don't. I don't. Okay, it's,
1: that's fair. It's, I, I have about the same level of optimism and skepticism as as I did last week. So, you know, we'll okay. see how they do, you know, especially depending on what, you know, Utah, Phoenix, and Denver are doing to finish out the season, if they're resting guys or whatnot. But it, if if those three aren't just completely in rest mode to end the season by the time the Blazers play them and the Blazers... Win those games, and it's not you know come from behind, last second, dame right. victories. My confidence level will skyrocket, and I will start planning the parade. I will I will start mapping it out. I will figure out where the socially distanced pods can be set up <laughs> down down Broadway. But uh, you know, we'll we'll get there. But I don't know. I'm right now. You're 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 getting ready to take the sip of the Kool Aid. Just a sip. Uh, my, Just a little my, sip. My, right now, I mean. I've I poured some
0: Kool Aid in the glass and it's sitting over on the counter. I'll I'll get to it eventually. Okay, that, that's I mean, that, that's where I'm at. That that I think that's okay. So let me, and I know we don't want to go too long, but I I wanted to ask about you know the Blazers. Terry Stotts has really tightened up his rotations, right? So we're seeing now it's an eight person rotation. It's the starting five, so it's Dame, CJ, Roko, Powell, and Nurk, and then you have canter Mello, and simons coming off the bench um you, you had a weird you know one minute of ronde hollis jefferson coming in as a defensive yeah. switch at the end of the game against yeah Lakers. that was a
1: fun experiment
0: that was weird it, it didn't it didn't work the first time and I, maybe it worked the second time but um so I, I mean how do you do you this is something that um that I, I think, where did I ask this? So we've been using the locker room app. I've been jumping onto pods and asking questions. I think it was Mike Richmond again in the Locked On Blazers podcast. I yeah, it was it was his podcast. I asked him what he thought about Terry Stotts tightening his rotations so much, mm. and whether maybe he should be giving other players time because. Depending on the matchup, you might want to have Derek Jones Jr. play some more minutes, right? Like maybe you want to switch it up. How do you feel about that? Are you feeling okay? About the rotations being tightened up so much, because the other thing too is that Dame maybe is not getting as much rest as you might hope. So I'm just curious your thoughts on this.
1: The with Dame not getting as much rest as I might hope, I'm perfectly fine with that. I said it last week that the big thing for me is if they can avoid the play in, they get they basically get five like four or five days off depending on when their first round playoff series would be. So it's it's not going to be like what we saw last year where they had to fight and scrap and and. Then play balls to the wall to get to the play in tournament to then continue to completely ball out. To then be wasted by the playoffs. That that's what you want to avoid. You don't want to you don't want to put in all this effort and time and work and shorten rotation and whatnot to end up in the play-in because then you're you're definitely going to burn out there. But if you can do it to get that time of rest, I think that's fine. As far as the rotations go, I'm perfect. Uh, I'm happy with them shortening it up because now guys know know their roles, know their responsibilities, know their minutes, know you know. And it's the core guys, you know. Um, Matt Moore wrote uh, something. For uh the Action Network. And he was talking about things that are super important to look for in the playoffs and 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 whatnot. Um, one of the things he was talking about, and it kind of, even though the Ronda helles jefferson thing last night with the Lakers was out of place, it it kind of gave me a little bit of hope as far as how Stotts may possibly adjust to matchups or whatnot, because uh, Matt was talking about in that article that you know you don't need to be a top 10 defensive team. Um in order to win in the playoffs, but what you see from those top defenses is their ability to mix it up. I mean, you saw that um, with uh, Nick Nurse in Toronto, I mean, throwing out box and one and random zones and whatnot. And your ability to adjust on the fly on defense is way more important than just like how, like how the Lakers typically play defense or, or whatever. So as, as long as Terry's okay with switching it up situationally playing a Derek Jones, Jr. Or Rhonda Ellis Jefferson or whatnot, I, I could care less about him.
0: You know, this, those guys not necessarily getting a run now
1: as so.
0: No, that's, that's, I think that's a, a totally clear eyed view of it. And here's, you mentioned the defense. This is something that I, I, we had talked a little bit about it, but I didn't realize, um, That the starting lineup has been this good in 280 minutes so far by shout out to at 503 Blazers fans for this little nugget on Twitter this morning. In 280 minutes this season, the starting lineup of Dame CJ, Norm Rocco and Nurk, they rank fifth in offense, first in net rating and Ryan first in defense. So that is I know it's at 280 minutes is a relatively small sample size but that's not nothing. I mean if you think no. about these players playing 30-ish minutes a game, right, uh, together. Yeah. It's probably a little bit less than that based on the on the subbing rotations. That's like, like 12, 13, 14 games when you put in the sub patterns. That's pretty impressive. And, and in the playoffs, your players, your best players, will be playing more minutes. So that lineup-specific ranking really does matter more once you get to the playoffs in particular. That's I, I mean, that's really unbelievable. Yeah, and it's... You know, I think it was what, uh,
1: just in the month of April, Anthony Simons was actually the team's best defender. So you're seeing, you know, you're seeing guys that are stepping up and taking the charge, and, you know, a lot of that does come from Dame, you know, ever since he basically said, it starts with me, and I've got to give more of a shit out there on the court on that end. You know, and then you see him, you know, picking up, you know, star players like he did with Tatum and whatnot.
0: Diving Uh, on the ground and stuff, yeah.
1: Exactly, and we saw that, you know. And so as we've been saying, like, all year, like, hey, you know, the Blazers have this, you know, great situational, like, you know, last three minutes of a game defense. Why the hell can't they do that for an entire game? Well now we're starting to see them do it an entire game and they're not needing that in just the last two minutes
0: or whatnot. That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's completely true. Um we had a couple of questions here from Twitter that I did want to get to. Um before we maybe close it out and get to the interview with Ben. Uh so let me start with this one. We have, yeah, we have we have a second one that just came in. So the first one comes from Chris McKee. Shout out to Chris. Uh we were homies in, in middle school. Uh he asks uh he well, first of all, he talks about when the Blazers came to Corvallis in the in the mid 90s, and the Charlotte Hornets came to town. Says he remem- remembers Alonzo Mourning hanging from the from the rim at Gill. I wasn't there, but I, I have talked about the game in 99 when the Blazers showed up, and Brian Grant stayed to to write the uh, to give the autographs to people who were waiting for him. But Chris asks. Um, Tap Teaser Chris, he'll get what that means. Uh, He asks, what is your favorite era of Blazers logo? So I notice that, Ryan, you have the current iteration of their logo on your chest uh, uh, quite prominently right now.
1: Yes, I I don't think it could be any bigger.
0: (laughs) Literally, that could not be any bigger. Um, uh, And I'm sitting here not in my Blazers gear, which I really need to be mindful of that, especially when on video. Um, What about you? What's your favorite era of Blazers logo? Uh, I think it give me early two thousands. You okay.
1: know when they kept, when they kept it in that black little slanted uh, triangle, and you know the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, you know I had one of those patches on on one of my you know really cool, super cool jean jackets as a kid. You know when they were <laughs> already phased out, but yeah, uh, early two thousands. I I like that. It, it was it was simple, um, sleek. You know, and I just yeah. I I for some reason that little stupid.
0: Slanted triangle, just I, I don't know. That does it for me. So you don't, you're not going to go with the alternative, the alternate logo from the mid 2000s, the flames on the side. That was a weird. I don't know why they tried to go with that. Every, you know, when you're growing up, everybody goes through a weird phase.
1: Yeah. I, I feel <laughs> as though that was the team's weird phase. That, 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 they tried to be punk, it didn't work. They pivoted <laughs> super quick.
0: Uh, I actually, you know, I think their their logo redesign, <laughs> the one that you're rocking right now, is actually pretty clean. They did a good job with that. For me, it's got to be just the classic. Logo that carried all the way through the early '90s, and I admit, like, maybe it's not so much the aesthetics of it; it's more the nostalgia that, like, that original logo is the logo, the, the vertical one that I remember most from when I was a kid and my formative years as a Blazers fan. So that's got to be it for me. Uh, we had we had another question. Let me just kind of sneak this up on you because I didn't prep you for this. Oh, uh, great. But uh, I quit. <laughs> at Justin underscore B underscore Leak on Twitter asks if you could choose just two of these five players to return next season, who would it be and why he says purely for basketball, so ignore the salary cap. So two of these five, and the five that he has are Ennis Cantor, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, Derek Jones Jr., Mello, and Harry Giles. Of those five, Cantor, Jefferson, Jones, Mello, and Giles which of those two would you want to return next season and why cantor and Jefferson okay that's, that's good yeah uh, cantor
1: is the best backup center in the league and he's proven that if he needs to fill in for spot minute or fill in for an injured center he's perfectly capable of doing it uh so he it, and if it's regardless of salary then Freaking great because he'll probably want another five, five, six, seven million dollars a a year next year. So, bring him back and then uh, Jefferson. Just well, he's not Mello, so that that gets him a win in my book.
0: Oh, <laughs> um, well, by the way, breaking news from Casey Holdall: Mello is out for tonight's game against the Spurs with a right ankle sprain.
1: Oh, great! So All there right. you go. Well, maybe
0: I, you'll I, uh, maybe you'll get to see. That's actually it. interesting because Mello is in that eight person rotation right. Those minutes, it's twenty minutes. Got to go somewhere. Nas guarantee you Nas is getting that Nas
1: is probably going to get that let him run, I know Derek Whites out for the Spurs, and it's great too that we're talking about the Spurs game because most people are probably gonna listen to this tomorrow uh so all of our <laughs> takes about the Spurs will be horribly uh, wrong and outdated but uh and then yeah with uh, Jefferson it's um, I, he's he's done okay for what his role is and you know you saw that when he played with the Nets and um, he's had moments here um, and Terry's proven that he can have a trust with him for subbing him in for some defensive. You know, assignments here and there. So, just just that. Giles, it's still I don't know what to think of him. Uh, he looks great
0: when he's out there for two and a half minutes running with third units, but. Yeah. I was gonna. I'm intrigued by Giles too, but you're right. It's like he hasn't really played against starters. Uh, Is it Giles or Giles? I think that it's Giles. I say Giles. Um, if it's okay. Giles, then I am sorry, I, but I think uh, I think it's Giles. I okay. agree with you on Mello, and I want to appreciate Mello more now that he's coming to the end uh, of his career. But like, Tara I mean, got to you. She got to you. Yeah, I mean, she kind of did. But like, look, like I appreciate Tara. You know, Team Mom on Twitter. She has the We Have a Take podcast and the Step Back Sisters podcast basically look just we should be honoring slash appreciating mellows the end of his career how he's evolved into a role player despite the fact that sometimes he may frustrate me a little bit when he gets the ball and he backs down backs down backs down backs down and then takes a contested shot maybe all too often uh frankly but um I, I do think it's important to appreciate him uh, where he is in this moment. Uh, and then I agree with you on Cantor. Th- where I may have a little bit of a, a quibble is between Derek Jones Jr. and Rondae Hollis Jefferson just because Derek Jones Jr. he's not playing, right? And like I've said this before, I've been flamed for it on Twitter that coaching genius Eric Spolstra also didn't play Derek Jones Jr. during the Heat's playoff run to the finals and people were like, well, he was injured before the playoffs. I went through as much of the reporting as I could find and there wasn't anything to suggest that he was having lingering effects in that injury or that that was the reason why he wasn't in the rotation it was a coaching choice right so like I think I agree with you on Cantor and Derek Jones Jr. with the caveat that you know he's just not playing right now and the Blazers yeah. had been succeeding so that's that's my take on it
1: i uh I, I can't appreciate Mello. uh i I have to stay on brand I've spent all years slandering oh him, and the, the more I slander him, the better he plays so i, 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 I gotta <laughs> stick with it now i'll appreciate him I'll, I'll appreciate him after the season I'll, I'll fill out my apology form him then uh until then stop sending them to me on Twitter. I will just immediately delete them and if you hand them to me in person, I will light them on fire so i'm going to mail then, some to you some hard copies a <laughs> sternly worded letter yeah exactly um Okay, so we lucked out, and we actually got a chance to talk with the Washington Post Ben Gulliver. Uh, I have long stated he is on my Mount Rushmore of writers. Uh, I, I love chatting with him. It's always great when he, when he gives time. And he just wrote his uh, his first book. Uh, I say first book as if we know he's going to write a second one. but uh He probably, typically, will. He probably will. He probably will. But uh, Bubble Ball, talking about his time in the bubble. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's get Ben in here.
0: All right, our guest today is a reporter with the Washington Post. Uh, He's also the co-host of the Open Floor podcast and the Greatest of All Talk podcast and author of the recently published book, Bubble ball inside the NBA's fight to save the season, which I believe you can see over his left shoulder. It's the man, the myth, the legend, Ben Goliver. Ben, what's up, man?
2: Not too much. It's been a wild week. You know, it's my first book, so it's just really been uh, a whirlwind journey of a lot of first-time experiences. But I'm in a great mood, honestly. It's it's great to see this project to the finish line after what's been a really challenging year, I think, for everybody. And you know, I just sank myself into this project during the pandemic. And so the fact that it's actually out in the world in bookstores is awesome.
0: Yeah, I imagine it's got to be super surreal. And that's actually what I wanted to ask about first was your experience in the bubble itself. Because I mean, I've I followed you um, from before you went there, during and after. I've heard you talk on your own show and other shows. But like there are moments in our life that like before they happen, they seem unreal or like impossible or like that thing could never happen. And after being in it for a while, I imagine you probably start to get a rhythm. It starts to feel kind of normal, right? Like you pick up on routines and like you start seeing and smelling and kind of feeling the same things in those routines. Um, and then it's over, right? And so you've had this extraordinary thing happen. You get used to it. And now you're out of it. And I just wanted to, be, uh, wanted to ask you that for you, what has that process been like? from before arriving and like everything going on in the world too with the pandemic i mean we were already in kind of an odd state um to actually being in the bubble for as long as you were and now that you've been away from it like how does that moment uh feel to you now does it feel surreal does it feel fake i'm just curious what your thoughts were on that
2: so there was definitely a big time acclimation process and then the routines that you're describing and then sort of a re afterwards i think you know, for me, I was already thinking about could a bubble take place months before the Disney World proposal came together. And I was hoping it would because I wanted the NBA to save the season. I didn't want it to just end in March 11th, And everybody's like, well, we don't know the the finish, you know, it's like a a book with no ending, right. And so I was very excited in the run up to the bubble. But I was also nervous and concerned from a health standpoint, because I was living a super lockdown life here in Los Angeles. I mean, basically having everything delivered, going for daily exercise, but otherwise working completely from home, coming into contact with nobody and really just, you know, trying to avoid risk at all possible. And so for me, the idea of the bubble initially seemed like it was going to be pretty risky. You know, there's players who could be the weak links. They invite someone into their hotel room, you know, they go to a strip club when they're not supposed to, I mean, they're doing all these things, you know, testing the rules and the boundaries. And so my concern was, am I going to be exposing myself to more risk now? The applicate uh, the acclamation process actually took place more quickly than I think, and it was easier for me because I don't have children, and I you know I live in a one bedroom apartment. I'm driving a Ford. Like NBA players, you know, a lot of them are family men, right? Uh, a lot of them are used to mansions and they're used to lots of cars and they're used to flying to games and helicopters, like a Kawhi Leonard. And so I think that they actually had a little bit more of a culture shock experience than I did. In part because my day to day is driven by writing and uh, podcasting, two very solitary acts that haven't changed a ton, you know, if if we're talking about um, life in the pandemic. So once I got down there situated, I felt pretty good. But coming back out of the bubble was surprisingly challenging, because we had followed so many rules we had been forced to, right? I mean, there's a big brother element to all this Security apparatus is monitoring our behavior, tracking us at every movement, right? Yeah. And then you just get dropped into the Orlando airport where people are wearing masks, but they're kind of not wearing masks. Florida's kind of been the wild, wild <laughs> west in terms of the pandemic the Thanks, whole time. Florida. <laughs> Nobody cares about the the social distancing stuff nearly as much as we did in the bubble, you know. And it struck me like I actually got into the TSA line, and for whatever reason, they decided they had to pat me down. And I was like, I haven't been touched by another human being basically in three months. And then here's (laughs) this guy whose entire job is to touch other humans. He's probably had more social contact in one hour during his normal job than I've had in three months. So there were some moments like that where it was very surreal. But I look back on the entire experience fondly, and I tried to capture it as thoroughly as possible. And so for me, yes, it was surreal. Yes, it was a once in a lifetime experience. But it's also something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And hopefully that comes through in the book. I want this to be a very thorough kind of reflective account of this experience, uh, not only in America, but, you know, specifically in the NBA.
1: Nice, nice. So uh, during your course of being in the bubble and did did you go into it with the idea to write a book about the process or did that just kind of come about while you were while you were sequestered in your hotel room thinking about everything that was going
2: on? No, I went into it just trying to stay safe, man. Like I, (laughs) I got on that flight. I didn't get my health clearance until less than 24 hours before I was flying to Orlando, my final health clearance. So it was a nerve wracking experience all the way up into the end. So I was just trying to figure out how do I get from point A to point B? I mean, the travel prices were so low. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to travel as if I'm like a superstar because it's 75% off. And that's the best way to like, (laughs) make sure that I'm safe. Right. So I had a first class seat. I don't usually do that. I had a black car waiting for me at the airport. I don't usually do that. I stayed a night at the Ritz Carlton before they let me check in just so that like, you know, I was trying to convince myself, hey, everything's going to be okay. You know, yeah. if you're, you're living this life of luxury. And, you know, it was wild that, you know, the prices at that point because just nobody was traveling for obvious mm-hmm. reasons, right? Yeah. Um, once I got there though, the amount of interest was just absolutely insane. You know, I was hearing from people all over the world. A lot of the questions were like, Do you think you're going to die? Is this thing going to work? What happens if players get sick? And, you know, there was no other sports going on really. And so this was sort of like the test case scenario for life during a pandemic, but also the return of professional sports, something that a lot of people have missed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was writing a few essays at the start of the bubble that were just getting a lot of traction. You know, a lot of people were reading it. We had it on the front page of the Washington Post website. And I heard from an agent and a publisher within about two or three weeks of me being down there saying, like, this is a book, you know, we like your stories, you know, give us a proposal, let's figure it out. So after about a month into the process, I knew I was going to be doing it. And I was really gung ho about it. Um, You know, I was so excited at the opportunity to watch basically every playoff game I possibly could while I was down there. And so I felt like the right person to document it in my own eyes, of course, and I'm sure other people will as well, and they have. Um, But it just seemed like this is a natural project. I'm already down here. You know, I care so much about the sport. And I've been covering the protest angle, the business angle, the public health angle for the post already. So let's just put this thing together. And, and it came together quickly. And I wrote it quickly as well. I mean, it was basically two month fever dream of writing, you know, five hours every single night to get the first copy of the manuscript done. And then a lot of editing after that. But uh, I, I didn't plan it by any stretch. I would never go back and rewrite that history because I went down there with a face shield thinking like oh my god like you know am I going to be able to, am I going to be able to survive
0: I mean to your point about it being like a test case I mean who would have known that if a country or if just like a a group of people were to isolate themselves and test regularly right and stay safe that you could stop the spread of the virus and I think that that's something that I mean, a lot of us who were here in the U.S. during the time saying, wow, it's too bad that we didn't do something that looked like this a lot sooner. And just to see it work was pretty extraordinary. Um, I had one more question to your point, too, about kind of trying to stay safe. I think that you had talked about early on the routine of getting tested regularly and like that maybe there was some anxiety that came with those first couple tests. Like what's, what's, what's it going to come back? But then after a while, wasn't it like kind of comforting? I think you were talking about to know that you were being tested all the time.
2: But the testing thing was fascinating because, you know, I had never been tested before I got down to the bubble. Right. So the first couple of times you're thinking, well, like, Hey, I've been very isolated. So I'm probably okay. I don't have any symptoms. I'm probably Okay. But I did just fly cross-country, and we didn't really know exactly how does airflow work in the airplanes. And, you know, these little measures I thought I was taking, that's no guarantee. I mean, you're still potentially at risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first couple of tests, they were also really intense because we were locked into our hotel room for a week-long quarantine. So it was my only social contact of the day. Was people coming up basically in hazmat suits to stick Q-tips up my nose? I mean, that's that's a lot, right? I straight, mean,
0: s- straight out of a horror movie,
2: <laughs> right?
0: I remember you pacing around your room just to get exercise. Like that's just
2: absolutely no. It was full lockdown, right? And so, um, for me though, the real peace of mind came once we got the results from the players' tests because that's ultimately like that's a much wider sample, right? So again, I'm thinking I can control my health pretty well, just stay isolated from just about everybody. We've got 350 players here. They're playing in games. They're practicing. They're in scrimmages. We got about two or three weeks into the process, and there was still no positive tests. And I said, you know what? All these protocols are really intense, but they're working. And that was really the peace of mind. But then there was another wave of feelings, and that was guilt. Because we're sitting here getting these tests every single morning, just walking in No line, you know, usually at most you would wait five minutes, right? In and out, you have the results emailed to you within like 16 hours. So you'd get it done in the morning. You would know by the night before you went to bed, what your latest result was. They would do that every single day. How many places in the world at that point and how many places in the the United States, especially in July, had that level of testing access? Very, very, very few, right? And so to me, I was like, "Well, do I even need this? I'm relatively young. I'm healthy. I am isolated. Like, you know, I'm, I'm following all the best guidelines. There are so many frontline workers, other people who couldn't get tests, and yet I had to take them because otherwise I couldn't stay in the bubble. So there was a lot of uh, emotional roller coasters going along with that. But I would just also note, like, the protocols were nuts, man. We were getting tested every single day. We were doing, and I should say nuts in a good way because again, they work, but they were right. just very intense. We're, we're filling out health questionnaires every single morning." We're taking our temperature every morning. We're doing our uh, blood oxygen level every morning. We're wearing a device around our neck that beeps if we get too close to people, like a smoke detector almost. <laughs> we, I had a tracking ring that would take my temperature in real time. I had a wristband that was my electronic key code to my room, but also to other facilities in the, um, in the campus. So they knew exactly where I was at every moment. And then they also had four layers of security, Disney security, NBA security, local police, sheriff's deputy. And by the way, video surveillance too, all over the campus and a closed campus. So you can't, I mean, you could walk out right by the cops if you wanted to, but you're not getting back in, right? So, and there was no no transportation. You know, we couldn't drive anywhere. You know, you couldn't go to a store. I brought $400 cash with me and I think I brought like 260 home. The only money I spent down there was to get my hair cut the entire time because there was nowhere else to spend money, right? So this is the kind of rigorous regimented lifestyle we were living and that's how you can keep thousands of people, all negative, you know, that's how you do that.
1: Last, uh, last little question before we, uh, pivot over to, uh, talking about the blazers, but what's it been like for you to go from basically being like the, you know, as a writer, being the person who conducts these interviews to now being on this, uh, fun, fun little book tour. What, what's the weirdest part for you about that, that little switch?
2: well, look, I mean, ultimately, this was a passion project for me. I, I poured, you know, eight months of reporting into it and then basically three or four months of writing. So I'm actually loving it because this is probably the, the project in my entire life where I've had the most creative control over. I had awesome editors, but they really turned me loose on this one. And it's a memoir, you know, in a way, it's my own personal first person journey through this experience. And so just to be able to talk about it, it's been fun. It's obviously been very, very exhausting. But I've been, um, you know, pleasantly surprised by the amount of interest in this project. You know, look, the bubble captured everybody's imagination um, last summer. And I think a lot of people realize, like, there needs to be a time capsule account of this thing. Because if you're a basketball fan 20 or 30 years from now and you hear, wait a minute, LeBron won a title at Disney World. How did that happen? (laughs) Like, what is that even all about, right? Um, This book is that answer, right? And and I think I I bring it through pretty clearly, hopefully, and, and pretty crisply. Um, in terms of just focusing on the minor details of the experience to kind of paint the broader picture. Um, but no, I, I appreciate guys like you having me on to talk about it because um, this was a year of my life. There's no other way to look at it. I mean, that's really what I've been up to ever since the pandemic started.
0: Yeah, I, And I'll say too, I have my book finally now on order from Powell's. I would encourage anyone to please support your local bookstores if you can and getting this book um, and go out and get it immediately. So with that, yeah, I'll give it back to Ryan to talk about the Blazers. Oh, I'm, I, I'm apparently
1: then I, I just went Amazon. I I gave the big corporation more money. <laughs> honestly, either way, it's,
0: you know,
2: <laughs> look, I'll take it all. And I'll take your reviews too. You know, people have been saying some really nice thing in those, in those Amazon reviews. It's amazing what a little like, you know, compliment can do, especially when you've, you've spent so much time on a project. So I love palace, man. I miss palace. Honestly, like I almost flew home this week just so I could buy the book at palace. Cause I grew up in mm-hmm. palace, man. I mean, that's just hundreds of hours of my life in that bookstore. And Every time somebody visits from, you know, my family's from uh, the Midwest, anytime family would visit, it's like the first stop, we got to show you this bookstore that's as big as a city block, you know, and so to me, that's a point of pride. I can't wait to get back up there.
1: So, uh, talking about the Blazers a little bit, there was a couple things that, I wanted, that we wanted to ask you, at least in regards to like the national perspective of the Blazers and how they're doing. Uh, one of the things that kind of blew up lately, obviously, that piece from, uh, in The Athletic from Shams and uh, Sam Amick saying that Stotts is the number one coach on the hot seat. And apparently that was shocking to to a lot of people in in the national landscape it seemed uh what is any of that was any of what they were talking about in that article did any of that shock you or take you by surprise or has the writing kind of been on the wall
2: so far as this season has progressed well i like to stay in touch with a lot of the thinkers in the blazer community for sure and i've been hearing a lot of bubbles you know for the last couple of months I'm just like hey you know is it time for a new voice where's this thing going and um, I'm sure you guys saw Chris Haynes' story, you know, is Lillard having the proper amount of help? And I think it's a real question in terms of ownership's commitment at this stage. It's like, all right, well, this was Paul Allen's baby for decades. You know, is it Jody Allen's baby or is it she just sort of like, you know, kind of carrying this thing along? And I think this summer is going to reveal a lot of answers there, right? I mean, I think if Paul Allen was still the owner, he would probably look at the situation and say, hey, we've kind of hit a wall. We need to shake it up. Maybe the core group's not working, and maybe it's just time for a different coach. Does Jody feel the same urgency? Totally open question. It's very difficult to read uh, to get a read on her priorities as an owner um, over these last couple of years because it's been so much about just rolling things over and trying to uh, extend this window and and just uh, cycle the pieces around that main group. Um, In terms of the national reaction, I think the reason why you might see some surprise is because of a healthy respect for Terry Stotts. He's a classy professional, no matter what you want to say about him. He's been around the NBA for a long time. I think a lot of people who don't follow the Blazers day in and day out would say, like, he hasn't had that much to work with. He's been dealt a really tough hand with injuries over the years. He's absolutely maximized his best player, Damian Lillard, put him in a position to succeed. Preach. And they made the playoffs, you know, seven or eight straight years. And so a lot of people would say, well, like, what do you more, do you really want from this guy? If, if you're constantly giving him these uh, new free agents or you're um, you know, trading a, a Gary Trent Jr. So you don't have to pay him. Like, that's not a coaching decision, right? Um, And so I think that's probably where the disconnect comes from. Also, people just sleep on the Blazers, man. Like, that's part <laughs> of it too, you know? It's like every year when they're in that six or seven seat, it's like, oh yeah, Portland, they're doing their thing in game. Dame's going crazy, you know, kind of float him into the MVP conversation. And that's just kind of the end of it. And um, look, that's been a lifelong uh, struggle, at least in my entire life. You know, the Blazers have never quite gotten that top billing compared to some of these other teams. And so that's probably where the surprise factor comes from.
0: And like, look, I know that Terry Stotts is not the best coach in the NBA, but it, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's always interesting to get someone's perspective who covers the entire, entire NBA because I don't feel like you can really evaluate any one coach unless you're looking at all of them so sometimes I think if you're only focusing on the Blazers and I'm guilty of this you get a little bit myopic just on that team and there's nothing to compare them against if you were to try to peg in your view. And look, I mean, you're super familiar with the team and you cover them for a long time. Uh, if you were to peg where Terry Stotts is in the hierarchy of NBA coaches, would you say that he's a great coach above average or average or not very good or like one of the worst coaches in the NBA? Like where would you put him on a, on a simple scale like that? If you, if you had to, no, I
2: I mean, I would have him in that top 10 to 15 range. Look, you know, there's some real questions about, okay, defensively is he one of these coaches where like the team is just consistently rough on that end because of his philosophical values or because of a lack of talent i would tend to say you know a lack of defensive talent has held him back a lot but i think he's deserved a lot of the credit he's gotten as an offensive thinker i don't really know how he could have managed damian lillard's career better and ultimately in the modern nba this is one of my new talking points we used to talk about players are they coachable or not coachable now we need to flip it around because the stars have all the power so when it comes to coaches, are they playerable or not playable? In other words, are they going to be able to like reach players with massive egos and gigantic contracts and still connect to them and still get the top maximum effort and buy-in out of your star level players? That's most of the job in today's NBA. And Lillard has sworn by stocks throughout his entire career. He stood up for him multiple times when the hot seat stuff has, has picked up. And so to me, that, that's a great sign of respect. He's just got that, uh, you know, that calm and quiet swagger that some coaches lack, you know, and well, I I would put him in that
0: what's happening in Indiana right now. Right. Like to your point about not being able to connect with players.
2: Right. Great uh, example of a uh, coach who is not playable and he won't be a coach (laughs) at the end of this season. (laughs) It's probably going to be an assistant coach. Um, And so that's why I would say, I mean, there's a lot of younger coaches, less experienced coaches, less creative offensive uh, coaches compared to Terry, you know, I'm not going to say he's like a top five draft pick if you're picking for the coaches, but I think he's solidly in that 10 to 15 range. You don't make seven straight playoff appearances with a bad coach. I'm sorry. You just don't. It's so hard to do, especially in the Western conference, especially when you're in a smaller market where when you've got those two big contracts, it really hampers how you build around those guys. And, uh, you know, I think that Stotts has, has survived some really tough times. And I I think that, I mean, if, if he does get let go this summer, if they part ways he's, he better do that with his head held high. And I'm sure he will, because, uh, I don't, you know, I don't really see a bunch of coaches out there who would have gotten better results.
1: So you were around, uh, the organization during its, uh, last, last coaching search. And I think that's, I think you were still local around that time. Weren't you? Oh
2: yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just, no, I, Caleb Canales is my guy, man. He's the interim <laughs> coach. Everybody remember, do you remember when he won that first game against Chicago and it was Oh, like, we wanted yeah. to hire him right then. Just yeah, make it full time. No. Let's let's he's, keep it he, rolling. He's a great guy, and he's still, you know, he's still doing his thing now. He's with Indiana right now as well. But uh, yeah, that was it was a surprise when they grabbed Terry, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. and kind of on on that, you know, obviously, you know, Blazer fans, we love going absolutely crazy. So everybody now somehow thinks that uh, the Brinks truck is going to show up to Spolster's place and get him to uh, to come back home, or or that we'll finally be able to nag Becky Hammond away from the Spurs. Um, those are all unrealistic goals, correct?
2: Well, you're not going to get Spolstra. I mean, look, he's a heat lifer. I think he's liking life uh, down there in South Beach pretty well. And he's had a lot of success there. And I think that it's one of those situations with Spolstra where like he just found the ideal mentor in Pat Riley. And he was given a large wide berth to kind of succeed and to grow as a coach. And he just learned at the foots of a great, or sorry, that learned at the feet of a, a great. And you know, that's, that goes deep. You know, I don't think you're going to be able to snag him. Becky's an interesting name because I think that she's been on the radar as a head coach for a while and somebody eventually is going to give her a shot. Um, It's more a matter to me of when, not if, um, and that's a nice turning point for the league because you go back five years when she was first kind of getting into the summer league stuff, there was much more pushback or like just kind of hesitation about, oh, could she really do it? I think at this point people have gotten over that and that she's going to get a real shot to do it. I'm not sure where Portland would go with this hire. It's another thing to track because of the pandemic coaching salaries vary widely, like super experienced, very well-regarded coaches make a lot of money, right? And you're, you've seen some uh, teams like Oklahoma city, for example, they part ways with Billy Donovan, bring in a first time coach. They're saving a ton of money on that, right? And so if you're cost conscious here during the pandemic, it's a great way to get cost savings. We saw Houston do the same thing. They let Mike D'Antoni go. They bring in a first-timer Steven Silas. I mean, you're potentially saving like 80, 85% on the salary by going with the young coach. Mm-hmm. That's a real incentive for these organizations that are kind of looking at their bottom line and saying, where can we trim here and there? If you do give a first-time, uh, you know, you get like a long-time assistant coach's first shot, um, you know, that could be some new energy and that could be a win for your roster, but it could also potentially be a win for your owner as well and, in terms of cost savings. Another guy to watch on that, Scott Brooks in Washington, you know, um, he's been, he had a really nice big contract. He's coming to the end of, do they give him a new deal and are they going to pay up for that? Are they going to go a different direction? You know, that's kind of a fair question to ask. We saw it in Sacramento too, with Luke Wong. you know, they don't want to fire him because they didn't want to have to pay two coaches simultaneously. So I would say follow the money on Portland's hire. If they get a prominent assistant coach or a coach who has been a, a head coach previously, that's a great sign of Jody Allen's commitment. That will mean a lot. If they get somebody who you've never heard of, okay, that's going to signal that uh, she's tightening the belt a little bit.
1: All right. Uh, ben, don't want to take up too much of your time. So we thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, go ahead and let everyone know uh, again where they can find your book and find you and follow you and everything you got going on.
2: Well, I'm writing all the time over at WashingtonPost.com slash sports, and I'm on Instagram at Oliver. The book is in bookstores right now, Barnes & Noble, Powell's. Uh, like Brandon mentioned, you can get it on Amazon like you did. Um, and uh, pretty much anywhere else you get your books, you can find it. So it's, it's uh, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season.
1: All right. Thanks, Ben.
0: All right, guys. Take care. Thank you again to Ben Golliver. It is always awesome to have him on. And yeah, just really appreciate his time. Please do check out Bubble Ball. Grab that book, whether it's from a local bookstore or from somewhere else, just get that. Um, and I think that's about it for today's show, Ryan. Um, let me put you on the spot. If people wanted to connect with our podcast, how might they do that? And again, I have not given you any prep for this. I'm not sure if I've even given you all the logins and the emails and stuff, but let's just see what you do off the top of your head.
1: <laughs> what I do off the top of, the- uh do we have an email
0: we do it's uh we like the blazers at gmail.com you can also find us at we like the blazers.com uh you can find me at goldner pdx and we would appreciate your reviews ratings and subscriptions so i'll bail you out there yes it's both just we like the blazers.com and we like the blazers at gmail.com but where where the hell could people find you if they wanted you Find you can find you, you online. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can find me at the witty Ryan. That is with two T's. W h i t t. When I came up with that name, uh, I didn't think of the fact that a lot of people would take that as the Whitey. So, <laughs> <laughs> you are rather white. Let's be uh, honest. About that. Hey, I'm I'm fairly tan. I got this stupid ring white that makes me look a little more pale. But uh, but I yes, think we're both uh, pretty it's pretty white. It's, even it's, even
0: it's, when we're tan, we're still really white. yeah.
1: But it's one of those weird things. You don't pick your nickname. It was a nickname that was given to me. I just I just roll with it. But yeah, it's kind of hard to when you write it out. You're like, oh, the whitey, and I'm like, God, that does not play well today.
0: <laughs> you know, you, can, <laughs> you if you want to, you can change your Twitter handle. I had to do that actually for the show. Uh, so yeah, if you want to change it, you can. But I think it's. I, I yeah. I'll, it rhymed, I'll, I'll, it I'll rhymes g- with your name, and it also it's kind of like it's like witty, like you are witty. It's, I think, it, I think it's fine. I think it works. Yeah.
1: Again, so uh, you can find me there. Um, please don't stalk my house and yell and yell how
0: stupid my blazer takes are outside my house. So uh, don't come there. Other, other than that, uh, yeah. I, Go really to I, Ryan's house and hand deliver him his mellow apology form for him to be filled out in triplicate. Uh, before the end of the season. All right, Ryan, appreciate you. Thanks again to Ben. Thank you to all of you. And yeah, see you soon and go Blazers. Go Blazers.